Believe it or not, friends, this is week number 20, 2-0 in our series going through the Gospel of John. And I want to be very honest, I am super stinking proud of you guys. I really am. It's 20 weeks. 20. And if anybody ever came to you and said you can't handle a long sermon series, we've proven them wrong up in here, I think. And uh, we still have a lot more to go, actually. So isn't there something about counting your chickens before they're hatched? But anyway, uh, we've got a lot more to go, but it's going to be really good. It's been really good. What a blessing it's been this past season where we're going through this together. Now, I will say, after today, we're going to be taking a break from the Gospel of John. Somebody say, oh. It's going to be a good break. We're going to take the summer off and do some different stuff and talk about some different things and be encouraged in a number of different ways. And then we're going to jump back into John in the fall and go for another big rip through that. Uh, but today we're still in it. And I want to invite you now to turn in your Bible to John chapter 7, verse 53. John 7, 53. It'll also be on the screen. This section of scripture, you can also look for John 8, the beginning of John 8, if it's easier. It's kind of weirdly laid out, but this section of scripture we're going to cover today is a really famous one. It's a really famous encounter that Jesus had. It's something that's really encouraging for us. It's something that you need to know about whether you're a Christian or not. But before we can get into that word, we've got to go for a little detour. How many of you like going for detours when you're driving? A couple of you do. All right. Well, this will be a good detour. Because when you open your Bible to John 7:53, I don't know what your page looks like, but there should be some sort of little note or like a page break or some sort of star there to get your attention or something on your page. I'll read you what it says in mine. Right before the section we're going to read today, it says in brackets, the earliest manuscripts do not include 7:53 to 8:11. That happens to be the exact section we're going through today. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. So the detour I want to take us on is pertaining to that because I don't think it would be all that helpful to just blaze on past that. I want you guys to know why that's there and what that means and what that means for us as we read this word today, okay? So we're going to go on this detour. It's going to be a little bit heady, but it's going to be fun, I promise. Are you with me? Okay. So the first thing I'd say then is that we as Christians make a lot of claims about this book right here. A lot of them are pretty bold claims, to be honest with you. Chief among which is that we as Christians consider this to be the word of God. And we throw that around a lot, but let that language not be lost on us. The word of God. Hello, right? And there's a lot of people that disagree with that and have a big problem with that, but that is just straight up our conviction. This is the word of God. We believe that there is a God, do we not? Can we just start there? There is a God. And he created this whole deal, everything that we see and know and sense and experience, God is over it all. And he has something to say to us. He has some sort of communication he wants to make with us. 
That's this right here. And that presents some logistical challenges, as you could imagine, because as you know, with God, we don't often or ever just say, hey, Lord, you want to hang out? Like you have something you want to chat about? Let's just go down to Starbucks and we'll get one of those really overpriced drinks and we'll sit at a table across from each other, person to person, face to face. You'll talk, I'll talk, you'll listen, I'll listen. It's not really how it works with the Lord, right? So how is it that we can get from God has something to say and then we get to hear, receiving what God has to say? Well, it's a miracle is what it is. This right here, make no mistake, this is a supernatural book right here. We need to just be clear on the nature of this book. And in talking about how this word got to us, how many of you know it wasn't just, oh, a bunch of old dead guys wrote some stuff that seemed fitting to them and then they passed it on to us and said it was God. That's not what happened. How did this word get to us? I wanna share three things with you to that end. The first thing that happened is that it was inspired by God. Somebody say inspired. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture, how much scripture? Thank you. All scripture is breathed out by God. That means it originated with God. It came from God, from the mouth, the mind, the heart of God. That's just where it begins. Again, we didn't just make this stuff up. It originated with God. The second thing that happened in order to get this word to us is that it was recorded. It was written down by human authors. And again, That's incredibly miraculous and supernatural because there are some 40-ish different authors of the books of the Bible. How many of you know it's hard to get 40 people to agree on anything? Hard to get two people to agree on anything. Then you combine that with the fact that this word, it's not like, oh, 40 of us got together one weekend and we just hammered this thing out. This word was written across centuries and generations in different languages and different cultures The fact that it's come together as this cohesive word, like that's miraculous. And and I'll say this too, it wasn't just, hey, I want you to write some scriptures, so you just write down some things that you think should be in the scriptures. The Bible says that the writers of scripture were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Miraculous, supernatural, it's all through here. That the Holy Spirit, we talked about last week, anybody remember we talked about the Holy Spirit? He worked through, spoke to, influenced the writers of scripture. So when they were writing down, they were not writing their own thoughts. They were writing the word and the words of God. That's amazing. Isn't it amazing? The third thing that then happened is that it had to be copied. Somebody say copied. It's great. It's well and good. Let's take the gospel of John, for instance, since we're reading that. God, through the Holy Spirit, speaks to John, works through John. John writes down the word of God. Here it is. Boom, it's complete. Well, that's great, but how do we get that out to more people? It's great that you can read that, John, what you wrote, but we want more people to read it because it's good news. We want everybody to know what it says. So it needs to get distributed. And this was long before the days of the internet and social media, you could just post it on Facebook and it would get sent around that way. This was well before the days of the multifunction copying machines that we have where you press three buttons and 1,500 pieces of paper spew out. It had to be copied by hand. How many of you would not want that job? Writer's cramp, major writer's cramp. And so what would happen is that here's the original work, the Gospel of John, say, people would be 
recruited professionals, scribes, they would be recruited to write it all out by hand, letter for letter, word for word, punctuation mark for punctuation mark. And so through the years, more and more copies have been made. You with me so far? These copies are called manuscripts. Somebody say manuscript. That's an important word when we're talking about old writings like this. And the way that it works, generally speaking, not just with the Bible, but with any old kind of work like this, the more manuscripts there are of something, generally the better, right? The bigger body of work that can be found and, and unearthed of, oh, the Gospel of John, for instance. I mean, that's good. Additionally, the closer the manuscript is written to the time I'm saying this really bad. The closer the manuscript is written to the time of the event it's talking about, the better. So it would be, you know, I could stand here and write out the Gospel of John for you today. It would take me longer than today. That was funny. Um, thank you. And that's great. There, I've written it out in 2022. Well, that's fine, but way better than that is when they can go back and date some of these manuscripts to, for instance, like 100 AD, closer to the time of the events described in John. And I want to give you some figures here of some other ancient writings. How many of you have heard of Homer's Iliad and Homer's Odyssey, right? Some of you guys learned that in school. This half of the room did and this half didn't. I don't know what happened. I don't know where you guys went to school. <laughs> anyway... Of the Iliad and the Odyssey, there are about 1,800 known manuscripts, 1,800. That sounds like a fairly decent number, right? These have all been um, unearthed and dug up and discovered. 1,800, pretty good. There was a writer named Sophocles. That's just fun to say, as most Greek names are. He wrote a couple hundred years before Jesus, Life on Earth. And there are about 200 manuscripts that we know of, of Sophocles' writing, 200. There was another guy named Herodotus, another cool name, and the things he wrote were pretty significant. He wrote a lot of historical stuff. In fact, he is referred to as the father of history, pretty significant title. You would think, oh, we probably have a lot of his manuscripts. We have about 100. They found 100 of his manuscripts, but that's enough of a number for the experts to say, okay, we feel really good. This is authentic. This is fine. Uh, the, the philosopher Plato, not Play-Doh, Plato, thank you, about 210 known manuscripts of Plato. And then there's the New Testament. There are about 5,000 known manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. Isn't that cool? 5,000, exponentially more than some of these other really famous writings. And that gives the experts confidence in what's written here. And then you combine that with the fact that the Bible has a lot of really accurate historical data in it. It has a lot of prophecy in it, some of which has already come true to the detail. You can't just make this stuff up. And the Bible perfectly describes the human condition. Here's my point. This word right here is trustworthy. Trustworthy. So with that in mind, when we consider our text in John chapter 7 and 8, and we read that the earliest manuscripts did not have this section, well, what are we supposed to do with that? Is that supposed to cause us to be concerned? Like, is, is this section we're going to read today trustworthy? Does this call into question the trustworthiness of the whole rest of the Bible? I would say no, and I'll tell you why, <clears throat> since you asked. In order for something to have been included in the New Testament, it had to pass two tests. 
Here's what the tests are. Number one, it had to originate from one of the apostles. Somebody say apostle. These were the people that hung around with Jesus. Like we don't have apostles walking around in the same way today. These were people that were there, eyewitnesses. They were the leaders in the early church and they wrote stuff down scripture-wise, through the Holy Spirit. Um, if it wasn't the apostle uh, himself actually writing it, it had to be overseen by an apostle. For instance, the Gospel of Luke was written by Luke. Luke was not an apostle, but it's widely believed that the apostle Paul worked really close with him, kind of overseeing it. The second test is this. In order for something to be included in the New Testament, its content had to line up with the apostle's teaching. So for instance, it's no good to have some kind of book in here that you know, the, the New Testament narrative is this, but this book is way over here, right? That doesn't make any sense. I'll give you an example. There's a writing called the Gospel of Thomas. Have you ever heard of that before? It's not in the Bible. And the reason it's not in the Bible, even though Thomas was an apostle, the stuff that's in there has nothing to do with the rest of the apostles' teaching. It's, it's uh, what's the word? It contradicts. It's not good. So people actually believe that that was uh, forged. It's a fake and someone just slapped his name onto it. So that's not in the Bible. You get to this section of scripture in John chapter eight and you say it's not in the manuscript, but that doesn't mean that it never happened though. Matter of fact, in John 21 verse 25, it says that Jesus did many other things that are not written in this book. Kind of plain, right? It makes it plain for us. And it says, if we tried to write them all down, there wouldn't be enough volumes in the world to contain it all. So just because it's not in here in its initial state, in the initial earliest manuscripts, doesn't mean it didn't happen. I have full confidence that this happened, I'll be honest with you. And the second thing that gives us confidence about it is what we're gonna read in John 8 today lines up perfectly with the rest of the apostles' teaching. It's not some wingnut story way over here. It completely accurately describes what Jesus is like, what his heart is like, other things that he did. So we can look at this text today with confidence. We don't have to be afraid of it. We don't have to skip over it. We don't have to pretend like it's not there. This is a good text for us to be in. The caution I would make is probably we're not gonna look at this section of scripture and carve it out all on its own and put it on an island and like build some really strong piece of doctrine based on this by itself. Probably wouldn't do that. But when we look at this in the context of the rest of the scriptures and the rest of the gospels, we can have full confidence in this. And it's a good word. That was the detour. You survived. Congratulations. Well done. Give yourselves a hand. Okay. All right. With that being said, let's read the text together. John 7, 53, it says, they each, they went, there you go, that's a good start. Let me try again. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people, how many people? All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, when you see those words, that's where the ominous like bad guy theme music starts to play. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. You guys know this, that means to throw rocks at her, okay? Not, anyway. So what do you say? Thank you. Thank you. Some words have double meanings, right? So what do you say? 
This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. I love this. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. They come at him with this big weighty question of the law and he just, without even answering, just starts drawing in the dirt. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Because why not? By the way, people have like wondered and mused about what he could have been writing. There's a couple of theories. We could talk about those. The short answer is we don't know. Let's ask him someday. Does that sound good? We'll all meet up together and we'll ask him, okay? But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Younger people, let that be a lesson to us. Sometimes the older generation is smarter than we give them credit for. Sometimes they are right more than we give them credit for. Sometimes they get it quicker than we do. I was gonna say that should have ministered to somebody. What happened? And the, Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. What a wonderful thing that is, amen? What an account that is. And the obvious takeaway from that, the big obvious takeaway is that Jesus has great grace for sinners. That's relevant to you, by the way, and I, because we're sinners. Jesus has great grace for sinners. Somebody say grace. grace. You guys know about grace. It's undeserved favor. Somebody does something good for you that you didn't deserve. Maybe you actually deserved something bad, but you got something good instead. That is grace, and Jesus has abundant grace for us. So in this text, we see this woman. She's caught in the act of adultery. I would not like to be that person, okay? It's not even, this would be bad enough, but it's not even, oh, this woman had uh, an affair and, and committed adultery and she acknowledged it privately to her husband years later and confessed. That's not what's going on here. She was caught in the act, Let's go ahead and not get too, you know, graphic about what that kind of means, but I think we all kind of know what that probably looks like. And they drag her out into public. They just drag her out. And the, and the Pharisees and the scribes present the case. She was caught in the act. And she was clearly guilty. We don't have to sit here and wonder, hmm, was she really actually? No, she was definitely guilty literally caught in the act. And the Pharisees were right in what they said to a point. They said, it says in the law of Moses that people who commit adultery should be put to death. That is accurate. That's what the law of Moses says. Here's a, just a sidebar for you. I would submit to you that the religious leaders here, and we've talked about them, they're corrupt at heart. They are not, uh, they are not godly good people. I would submit to you they don't actually primarily care about the law in this sequence, which is ironic because usually the law is the drum that they beat, right? That's all they care about. I don't think the law is their first concern here. It's probably there somewhere, 
But I'll tell you why. The law of Moses didn't say if people are caught in the act of adultery, you bring just the woman out. It says you bring them out and they both are put to death. Where's the man? They didn't even, yes, that ministered to the men, okay. (laughs) However the Holy Spirit's gonna stir in us, I guess that works. No, it's both. And they didn't even bring the man. They didn't even bother to bring him. If they really were so concerned about the law, they would have brought both the people out. But they're more concerned with destroying and discrediting Jesus than they are with the law. Because if Jesus responds and says, yes, put her to death, they'll say, oh, he's clearly not as nice as he thinks he is. But if he says, no, no, just let her off the hook, people will say, well, he's not holding up the law. This guy can't be taken seriously. So they drag this poor woman. And I know she's guilty, but they just make her the scapegoat. Drag her out in public and humiliate her in this way. And I love Jesus' answer. He, he does not play their game for one second. He stands up after he's doing his drawing there. He stands up and he says, let the one who is without sin among you throw the first stone at her. And the people have no answer. Because obviously that exposes them. Well, I can't throw the first rock because I've got sin myself. And he totally silences his opponents and they all walk away. And there he is left with the woman. I'll ask you this. Did she deserve that gracious treatment from Jesus? Somebody said, eh, that's the right answer. No, she didn't. So you say, well, Does that mean then if he just let her off the hook, did she just get off with no penalty, no nothing? She just got off scot-free? Hey, does that mean that if I sin, God just sweeps it under the rug and God doesn't really care and I can just do whatever I want and I'm scot-free? That's not what it means at all. Here's the way God's grace works. God is holy. Somebody say holy. That means he's perfect. He is Without spot or blemish or defect, he is righteous, he is pure, he's holy. Then there's us. Right? We we are not holy. In fact, we are unrighteous, we are impure. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all done things, said things, thought things, etc., that are sinful. And it's not just, oh, well, oops, sin is really, really grievously offensive to God. It's it's an assault on his character and his nature and his goodness and his holiness. And, And in the eyes of the Lord, sin honestly is a criminal matter. It's a legal matter. When you sin, you sin against God, and that's a crime against God. And God is also, in addition to being holy, he is just. Somebody say just. He's a God of justice. And the way that it works is when crimes are committed, sins are committed against the Lord, they are always dealt with, always paid for. There is no such thing as a sin that goes unpunished or uncovered somehow. And I'll explain that in a minute. But no one sneaks one past the Lord. You know what I'm saying? You can't just, you can't just pull the wool over his eyes and get away with anything. Nobody gets off with anything when it comes to sin. Okay? So far, that's bad news for us. Here's the good news. God loves you. God looks down at your broken, sinful, sorry state. 
this state of sinfulness that you're in, this state of being in the path of God's wrath and condemnation for your sin. You, you literally are in the wake of the death penalty for your sin. And God looks at you and he says, I want to make a way for that to be changed for you. Do we deserve that? No. But God, God so loved the world. God's love is so vast. And so what he does is he sends Jesus, his son, who unlike us, Jesus is perfect. He is sinless. He is righteous. We have not attained to that status, but Jesus has. And as the righteous one, the sinless one, Jesus went to the cross and he died there in our place as our substitute because he was without sin. He was an acceptable sacrifice for our sin. And on the cross, Jesus endured the full weight of God's wrath for sin. Guess whose sin it was? Ours. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. He didn't just pay for some of your sins. He paid for all of your sins. He endured sin and the punishment of sin so that we don't have to. Jesus died. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. He's ruling and reigning now. He's alive and well. He's coming back one day. But the ball now is in our court. Jesus died to make penalty, or penalty, no payment for your sin. And he is inviting you to accept and to believe and to come into that grace that he offers you. You see, because when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, when you acknowledge what he's done on the cross on your behalf, completely by his grace, not by any deservedness of your own, when you come into that and receive that and submit to Jesus in that way and you repent of your sin, you turn from that life, you leave your life behind and you walk into the new life that Jesus has for you, you're saved from your sin. Anybody believe that today? Is that good news for somebody today? And when that happens, when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ... His righteousness is credited to you. And he picks up your tab for sin. Think of the most expensive meal you ever ate at a restaurant. Jesus comes along and picks up your tab completely by his grace. If you're sitting here thinking, oh, well, I've been pretty good, like I did a little bit to deserve it, you did nothing. There's a quote that floats around that says, the only thing you contributed to the salvation process was the need to be saved in the first place, okay? Like, that's, that's the thing we've brought to the table. Thanks a lot, eh? Here's the cool thing. In this regard, since Jesus endured the wrath for sin on the cross, he was punished for our sin so that through faith in him, we don't have to be punished. That's grace. Justice is still, still served on the cross, but we can receive grace. God doesn't have to compromise himself. He doesn't have to go against what he says. It's all there. So that's God's grace. And what I want you to know today are five things about God's grace. Can you handle five things? Again, this side of the room can do it. Come on, this side. Can you handle five things? Yes, you can. Thank you. Five things you need to know about Jesus' grace. Wherever you're at, whatever your background is like, whatever you're coming into this room today from, five things you need to know. Number one is this. Jesus' grace is deep. It is deep deep. He met this woman in John 8 in what I certainly hope is one of her darkest moments. I hope it didn't get much worse than that for this woman, for her own sake. 
That's where Jesus met her, just in that moment of extreme shame and sin and embarrassment, humiliation. He did not meet her by saying, oh, why don't you just clean yourself up a little bit and then come to me? Why don't you like get your act together a little bit and then we can chat? He meets her in the thick of it. And that's good news for us. Because sometimes in our lives, we come into these things we say like, well, God could never forgive me. God could never love me. God could never use me because I've done X, Y, Z in my life. Let's be honest. I know some of us have thought that. I know we've camped out in that before. God could never forgive me. Well, let this be a lesson to you. He met this woman at her very darkest hour. What I hope was rock bottom for her. And he showed grace to her there. Whatever your darkest moment is, whatever that thing is in your life that you're looking back on, or maybe you're in it right now, saying, wow, I'm in deep. God could never forgive me. Here's the good news. His grace is deeper. His grace is bigger. His grace is better. It's greater than all of our sin. Number two, you need to know about Jesus' grace. It's an invitation. Somebody say invitation. invitation. He says to this woman, at the end of this text, he says, go and from now on, sin no more. That sounds a little bit like a threat, right? But more so than that, it's an invitation. He's inviting her to leave that life behind and to trust in him and to step into a new life that he has for her. That sounds like an invitation to me. So if you're not a Christian, he makes the same invitation to you. Because we've got to see ourselves in this, right? He's saying this to us. Hey, leave that life behind. If you're not a Christian yet, and if you've never tasted and seen that the Lord is good, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, if you've never accepted the gift of grace that he's offering to you, that's where it starts for you. For the first time, you give yourself to him. Again, I said earlier, that involves repenting of your sin. I'm, I'm doing this way, living my life, doing these things, but now I'm acknowledging Jesus as my Lord and Savior and the authority in my life, and by his grace and his power, I'm gonna start walking with him. I'm gonna die to myself. I'm gonna take up my cross and follow him because he has a whole life for you. Not only does he have grace for you, he's got so much for you, a whole life. So if you wanna know more about that, come find me or one of the leaders later. We'd love to tell you more about that. Most of us in the room here are already Christians. And what I want you to know is that we still need grace. Where's my mirror? Grace isn't something that you need just at the very beginning to get saved. And there I use that. Let's scrap that. I don't need it anymore. Oh, oh we need it daily. We need it every single day. What I would say, though, if you're a Christian, you're already covered by God's grace in a salvation sense. Let me pause there and ask you, just anybody glad? If you're a Christian today, are you glad that you've been saved by Jesus Christ? Good. I was hoping you'd say that. I definitely am. You are covered in his grace in salvation. And the cool thing about his salvation is it's not like, oh, okay, now I've received that. Now I've got to be really careful not to sin anymore. I don't want to mess up because then I'll lose it. I'll get disqualified. No, 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 no. If you're saved in Jesus Christ, you're saved, period. There's a rubber stamp on that sucker. It's not coming off. You're saved, period. Nothing can snatch you out of his hand. You can't lose your salvation. But we still need his grace 
sort of in, in, in a different sense, not in a I need to get saved again sense, but in an ongoing day by day sense. If you're anything like me, you've probably sinned maybe numerous times today already. And this is the Lord's day even. You can't sin on the Lord's day. This is part of our ongoing walk as Christians. It says in the book of James, I think chapter three, verse two maybe, we all stumble in many ways. Okay, let's get off our high horse here. You're no better than anybody else. We all stumble in many ways. And here is the trajectory of our walk with Christ as a Christian. We get saved by him, gives us new life, gives us the Holy Spirit, awesome. I'm gonna start walking with you, Jesus, and I'm walking, that's, that's great. And before too long, I've sinned. Oops. Well, again, it's not like, well, you had a good run, Braden. It was a great 30 seconds, like, <laughs> thanks a lot. No, there's a pathway. There's something that we're supposed to do. We can boldly approach his throne of grace, right? Because you've been saved by Jesus and you have a relationship with Jesus. So rather than, oh no, I've sinned, I've got to run from Jesus, we can actually run to him with our sin. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? First John chapter one says that if we confess our sin, we don't, we don't try to bury it, put it in the dark, hide it. We just bring it out. Lord, here's what I did. I don't know if this will offend someone. I, there's a guy that I know, the prayer that he makes in this vein, he goes, Lord, I suck today, <laughs> okay? Maybe it's that. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what the word says. So when you, as a Christian, are walking out your day and your life and you sin, you run to the Lord with it, you confess it, and he cleanses you, he forgives you, he builds you up, and you continue your walk. That is a big part of the life as a Christian. Obviously, we try by his strength to, to stop sinning and not sin as much, but all through this life, you're gonna sin, and that's the pathway. That's, that's just the heartbeat and the rhythm of the life that we have. Grace is not just a get-out-of-jail-free card. There, I have it. Now I can be on my way and do whatever I want. It's an invitation to a deeper walk with Jesus. Will you as a Christian or as a non-Christian, will you trust Jesus with your sin? Will you confess your sin to him? Will you trust that he's good and he loves you and he will cleanse you and build you up so you can continue walking on with him? That's, I mean, that's the test. That's the question. How are we gonna respond to the sin in our lives? And that's kind of an indicator of whether or not we get and understand his grace. Because when we really start to get his grace, we'll have a deep abiding understanding of his love for us. And if you're a Christian, like you're a child of God, you're seated in heavenly places with Christ. So you don't have to run from him. If you really get his grace, no matter how bad you mess it up, you run to him. Is your pursuit of grace, we all want grace. Lord, forgive me, show me grace, give me the good stuff. Is your pursuit of God's grace leading you to a closer pursuit of Jesus overall? That's how you can tell if you're getting this, if you're really understanding God's grace in your life. So it's an invitation. Jesus wants us to walk with him. Make sense? We good so far? Number three, this is just great. Jesus' grace is freeing. It's freeing. It says, oh, I've lost the place, but it says somewhere in the New Testament that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's not to be put under some yoke of bondage or to live in guilt or shame. It's for freedom. How many of you know Jesus wants you to be free? Jesus says to this woman, neither do I condemn you. 
even though she's in sin, neither do I condemn you. Here's what I want you to know. If you're a Christian today, Jesus does not hold and count your sin against you. So it says in Romans 5, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Again, that's not license to keep on sinning. That's a freedom piece of news right there. Wow, I've done, this is my testimony. I've done some bad, bad things. I've really dropped the ball. I've really fallen short. But Jesus has saved me and he's not shoving that record of wrong up in my face. So I can be free of that. I don't have to live under guilt or shame or condemnation from the things I've done in my past. I just find that amazing. And that's the case for you as a Christian too. And I would say this, there are some Christians, certainly not in this church, but in some other church somewhere, there are some Christians that don't live like Jesus has freed them. There are some Christians who even though they've been saved, even though they've been forgiven, even though they've been cleansed, even though Jesus' grace has covered over them, they still walk about wearing that shame, wearing that outfit, wearing that sin, wearing that title. Oh, well, I, God could never use me. Here's what I did. Oh, oh, oh. What happened to there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ? Why is it that we as people who have been set free from condemnation still wear that rag of condemnation? It doesn't make any sense. If you're a believer, Jesus does not condemn you. So why would you condemn yourself? Start living like you're set free. The more you start to understand God's grace for you and his love for you, the more freedom you will know and experience in your heart and in your life. How many of you guys want to be free? Every hand, let's have it. Every hand up. Freedom is available and possible in Christ. And when you're saved in Jesus, we can start walking in that. It's not a life of condemnation and shame. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's because it's a burden of freedom. That's a good burden. That's what I want. Jesus' grace is freeing. Number four, Jesus' grace is empowering. Empowering. He says to this woman, I keep circling back to this phrase. He says, from now on, go and sin no more. Super important phrase in there. What he's saying is, it's time to walk away from that sin. What he's saying to some of us today is, it's time to walk away from that sin. It's time to walk away from that life. And how many of you know it's really hard to walk away from sin on our own power? Been there, bought the t-shirt. It's no good. Oh, it's the worst. Here's the good news with Jesus, though. He doesn't say, hey, you go and sin no more, but I'm watching you. You be careful. Don't drop the ball or I'm going to bring the fist down on you. No, he actually says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to give you the strength that you need to overcome the sin, my strength. That would be called the Holy Spirit. Somebody say Holy Spirit. We talked about him last week. How when you're saved, when you come to Jesus, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and he strengthens us, he, he encourages, he builds us up, he guides us into the truth. He empowers us to walk away from sin. And part of that, it's tied right in with Jesus' grace. There's a verse in Romans that says it's the kindness of God, the grace of God that leads us to repentance and real change. It's not, I'm gonna try harder, it's wow, Jesus has given me everything I need to walk away from that life that I'm not supposed to be living and the thing I thought of this week are like the fruit of the Spirit. You ever heard of the fruit of the Spirit before? 
So when you come to Jesus and you receive the Holy Spirit and you start yielding to the Spirit and being filled by the Spirit, the Bible says that fruit will grow in your life accordingly. And the fruit of the Spirit is this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I cheated. I read them off my page. Just think about that. Maybe your sin, maybe the sin you're wrestling with as a believer is you're unloving. You're just unloving. And you, you are not seeming to find the strength in and of yourself to be loving. Well, guess what? When you yield to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, he produces love in you to make you more loving. It's not about you trying harder. It's about you humbling yourself and coming under the rule of Jesus. His grace empowers us. If your sin is, maybe you're in conflict with somebody. You're just fighting. You're at each other's throats. Well, guess what? The fruit of the Spirit is peace. And I'm not making this up. When you yield to the Holy Spirit, he'll produce peace in you. I want peace in my life. Maybe your sin, you're struggling with kindness. Maybe you're just a jerk. Not any of you guys. Well, the fruit of the Spirit is kindness. He'll make you a kind person. Maybe it's self-control. I was doing okay till I got to that one, right? Or patience, right? The Holy Spirit gives us patience. The Holy Spirit gives us self-control. It's right there, people. So if you're wrestling with the same old sin, you're just going down that same rut, that same path in your life, whatever it is, the invitation is there to drink deeply of Jesus' grace because it's not about you trying harder. It's about you coming under his authority. It's about you accepting the grace and lavishing in the grace that he has for you, which will strengthen you so that you can walk away from that sin. And I find that really good news because my effort is not up to par sometimes. But it's his empowerment. It's his strength. Are we good so far? Last one, fifth and final one. This one is relevant for 2022 for sure. Jesus' grace does not affirm your sin. Got heavy all of a sudden. It does not affirm your sin. That word affirm is one we're probably getting well acquainted with in the culture in these days. Affirm, affirm, affirm. I've had people ask me, are you an affirming church? That word is just all through there. The word affirm simply means to express support and agreement. So, so whatever you're doing, I support you. I agree with you. You're in the right. You're doing great. Good for you. Awesome. I'll golf clap for you. That's what affirming is. And in some ways, okay, not all affirmation is bad. I, like in some ways, in a manner of speaking, Jesus affirms us, right? He loves you. He's for you. He's got a life for you. He's got plans for you. He's not against you. He wants to build you up. Jesus is pro you, right? That's good news. But Jesus is not pro your sin. He's not pro my sin, some people might confuse this idea of grace with Jesus is saying, oh, I'm okay with what you're doing. That's not what grace is. Jesus has huge grace for this woman. It's massive, monstrous grace. I do not condemn you, he says. But he did not for one second affirm her in her sin. 
not for one split second. He did not say to this woman, oh, it's okay, dear, you are just living your truth. I affirm your identity as an adulteress. He didn't say that at all. That's an entirely different conversation. He said to her, you go and sin no more. AKA, what you're doing is wrong. It's sinful, and you gotta stop doing it. That's not a popular message in our day, is it? Because we live in this world where if you tell somebody that they're wrong or they're in the wrong or they're doing something wrong, we're labeled right away. You can't tell me that. You can't judge me. You have to affirm me. You have to accept me. I'm living my truth. You're labeled as a bigot. You're narrow-minded. You're this, you're that. It goes on and on and on. Not a real easy thing in this day and age. But this is so necessary because this message that our culture just spews out of you're perfect just as you are, never change, don't let anybody change you, that message is not from the Lord. It's not from the Lord. God loves you. God is for you. God invites you just as you are. Whatever mess you're in, but then he changes us. And there are some people who want Jesus. They, they identify somehow positively with the, with the gospel, the Christian ethic, the Christian message. They want Jesus. They want the life that he offers, but they're unwilling to humble themselves and come under his authority and let him speak into their lives, some of which speaking is inevitably going to say, Brayden, you're wrong in this area and you need to change. They're unwilling to do that. And therefore, they are not understanding and experiencing grace like Jesus wants to give to them. He never affirms us in our sin. I want to wrap this up. I want you to not confuse or mistake the fact Jesus loves you. Turn to your neighbor and tell them Jesus loves you. Okay, now do it like you mean it. Do it again. Do not walk out of here forgetting that truth. Jesus loves you. You are greatly, deeply, unconditionally loved, friends. And he has grace for you. He wants to extend grace to you, cover you in his grace. And his grace is deeper than you could ever imagine. It goes deeper and further than the very worst of our sin. This grace sets us free. This grace empowers us to walk away from sin. It invites us closer to Jesus. Guess what? Like we've been talking about, that's what this life is all about. It's about having a relationship with Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, wants to walk in relationship with you. His grace invites us to that. But we need to be willing to leave our pride at the door and come under his authority so that we can come into his grace.